thank you for joining us. Uh, today we will again uh, be touching on two court cases. Firstly, Reko Marakala will talk about uh, repudiation of an insurance claim by King Price Insurance Company. And uh, the um, case deals with false information that was allegedly provided by an employee of the insured. So uh, we will hear what Reko has to say in this regard, give us the facts, the decision, and then also the lessons to be learned. Then uh, secondly, Elmeri Richter will uh, deal with a court case on a sperm donor's application for his visitation rights. Very interesting uh, outcome there, so please uh, stay tuned for that as well. My name is Falker Kruger from Van Ferden Duffy uh, Attorneys. Uh, thank you, Reho Marakala, for joining us again today to talk to our listeners about the repudiation of an insurance claim by King Price Insurance Company. And I think it pertained to information that the insured allegedly incorrectly gave to the insurance company, to the insurer. Um, am I right, Rico? Yes, uh, that's basically what the matter relates to. Um, the matters of King Price Insurance Company versus Cons uh, Concise Consulting Services, CCS. Um, so for the brief facts of the matter in this uh, particular case, what, what happened was that um, obviously CCS, um, a company, uh, had taken out an insurance um, in favor of the motor, various motor vehicles the company owns um, with Kim Price Insurance. And with a particular respective vehicle, um, it was always driven by a regular driver, one of the employees of CCS, uh, being Mr. Ngobese. He was always the regular driver, and the insurance schedule always reflected uh, Ngobese as the regular driver of that vehicle. But somehow, unfortunately, as it transpired, was that Ngobese um, was involved in a car accident, a sole car accident. He was alone. Um, and thereafter, you know, as a usual mandatory practice, um, the company manager, Ngobese, informed his employer that, uh, listen here, I was involved in a car accident. And as the normal ordinary course, um, the company manager then uh, gave Kim Price Insurance a telephonic call saying that I want to claim uh, for the motor vehicle and... Um, as 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 we have all encountered with the insurance companies, they'll want to gather some evidence and they want to find out as to how did the accident uh, transpire and so forth in accordance with the policy of their of the insurance schedule. Um, and that is exactly what transpired. The insurance company came price, then undertook certain steps and investigations were done. Now at some stage the the King Price, being the insurer, um, contacted the company manager um, to discuss as to the how did the accident come about. Um, now, obviously, being a company manager and you not being there when the accident transpired, um, you said, uh, look, I think the best person who will be able to talk it's, would be one of our employees. And then, obviously, the insurance, uh, the King Price agreed to this and then uh, engaged the employee in Gobese as to the circumstances of the matter. And then, thereafter, King Price uh, made a conclusion that, listen here, we're going to repudiate your claim. Um, 
because there's some level of dishonesty, there's no truth, um, and there's quite uncertainty as to really how on earth that this uh, accident transpired. So the insurance company then repudiated the claim, but it did not end their forker. Okay, so they took the matter to court no? to, to challenge the decision uh, to repudiate the claim. Yes, quite interestingly enough, um, they did not, um, in actual fact, um, understand as to under what basis uh, is Kim Price uh, repudiating their claim. What they simply did is uh, for a mere 75,000 rand, you know, um, CCS then, the employer in this regard, issued summons uh, claiming an amount of uh, 75,000, um, which they were said was the fair and reasonable cost that it was required to repair the, their motor vehicle. Um, they issued these summons out of the magistrate's court, um, obviously. Um, and the magistrate's court, you know, through trial proceedings, you know, hearing the both sides of the story, um, Kim Price uh, uh, relied on three clauses of the insurance policy schedule, and one of them that uh, being that um, the insured should always be honest and provide us with true and complete information. The other clause uh, dealt with that, listen here, if you give us any information which is misleading and incorrect or false information, it will be to the prejudice and the, of, of us giving you a valid claim. In other words, awarding you a proper claim in that regard. And there was also a part of the wording of the policy that um, debarred anyone from committing fraud or being dishonest. And um, they held that, you know what, um, honesty is always the best policy. And if you or anyone acting on your behalf submits a claim or gives us information that is either presenting some form of fraud or dishonesty, we will reject your claim. Now, obviously, through the magistrate's court, um, the magistrate court, they concluded that after the trial proceedings and examinations and so forth were concluded, the magistrate's court uh, agreed with uh, King Price insur Insurance uh, to say that they were entitled to reject the claim. Now, as normally as litigants will do, they were not satisfied with the magistrate's court um, order to the effect that um, it is indeed true that their claim should be repudiated. Now, this matter then thereafter, you can imagine for 75,000 Rand, it then again went to the High Court. And as the matter appeared before the High Court, um, they sort of like tried to limit the issues on which the High Court was supposed to um, consider. And the High Court, um, you know, they had to formulate their understanding of this particular matter, you know, between King Price and the, the employer, CCS. And that was whether the employee was acting on behalf of his employer when he was giving that information, the telephonic information about how the accident happened to Kim Price and whether their assessors, um, when they were validating the claim during that particular process, he was acting on behalf of the employer. In other words, the owner of the property, um, being the motor vehicle, being the employer. Now, obviously, King Price Insurance always um, um, held, as they did in the magistrate's court, to say that, yes, the employee was acting on behalf of, of CCS, uh, being the employer, and he was obliged not to give us false information. And any untruths that are given to us as an insurance company, these are material issues of which will lead 
to a repudiation of the insurance policy. Now, CCS, on the other hand, had always maintained to the contrary. In other words, saying that Mr. Ngobese had at no time um, been representing CCS, being the employer, um, because he merely um, gave that information because the manager of CCS, the employer, was not aware as to how the accident occurred. The only person who was aware as to the circumstances of the accident was the person who was involved in the accident and not uh, the, the general manager. And under those particular grounds that um, the employer had always maintained. Now, obviously, the High Court then granted an order in favor of, um, of, of CCS. And unfortunately, also dissatisfied with that decision, then King Price then went to the Supreme Court of Appeal, saying that the High Court was wrong in giving us and citing in favor of the employer in holding that um, indeed the employee was not acting on behalf of the employer. The same issues were conversed in the Supreme Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Appeal, um, they held that um, taking into account the whole evidence that we, the record that we had in the magistrate's court and also the high court, we surely agree with the high court in its reasoning and its conclusion thereof. And was that, you know, it is generally accepted that if you give a particular person or a clause if it's referred to in a contract or any agreement where it will have a term on behalf of um, or whilst acting on behalf of, it can be generally accepted that it, it refers or sort of like gives someone uh, a, a sort of like creating an agency relationship and that but however, in certain cases, it does not necessarily mean that someone is conversing information on behalf of another person. And we should always be cautious of this. And that is one of the mistakes that the uh, the magistrate court had um, had actually found itself in. And you should always consider the circumstances of the case. And thirdly, um, the Supreme Court of Appeal went on to deal with the normal basic principles relating to agency and that there should be a clear, direct uh, uh, relationship between the person who's conversing the information and whether or not they're acting on the interest of that particular party to achieve a particular goal. Now, under these circumstances, the employee was not the one who was supposed to, when giving the information, was not the one who was supposed to actually give information which would lead to the validation of the insurance claim. But however, that is just a mere subcategory of information that is collected by an insurance provider to be able to conclude whether or not an accident happened and whether or not it should pay. Now, it also concluded that under no circumstances was there evidence to show that the manager asked the employee to fabricate the information or give false information, but he just simply directed the employee to inform King Price about how the uh, accident had happened, as the High Court um, had held uh, Falker. So uh, that is the summary of the, the, the King Price matter. Um, again, uh, the Supreme Court of Appeal, um, they agreed with the High Court and they held that the repudiation or the rejection of the insurance claim by Kim Price was not only unfair, but they should, uh, in actual fact, not have repudiated that claim.
So it was accepted that there was false information provided by that employee. Is that right? The court accepted that that was proven. But the conduct of that employee was uh, not um, the con or regarded as the conduct of the insured, the, the employer. And hence, the uh, repudiation was unlawful. Is that right? Definitely correct, Walker. Okay. What was the false information that the employee provided? Was it related to the accident as such, how it happened? Yes, most definitely. I think it's all the the kind of issues that um, were canvassed during the trial court. As you know, when matters start uh, at the magistrate's court, you know, you have um, witnesses being able to testify. And according to King Price, um, Ngobese, who was the employee who was involved in the accident, uh, gave very contradictory ex- uh, um, uh, factual circumstances as to how the accident happened. At first, there was a mentioning of that um, he was taking one of the friend's girlfriends to the hospital, rushing there, and that is when the accident happened. And in other circumstances, he kept on contradicting himself um, through the statement that he gave to the insurer that actually the accident happened after, and it was later proven that there was some liquor bottles inside the vehicle, the motor vehicle, and so forth and so forth. So that is what the investigating officer had found out, and according to the statement. So they based their their conclusion on repudiation based on those unclear facts as to how the accident happened. Did it happen when he was going to the hospital? Was there ever anyone who was uh, who went to the hospital to be delivered because um, that particular individual, that particular woman was in enduring labor pains and so forth? But it was never found how what is actually the true facts of the matter. And that is one of also the consequences of this matter was that, as the High Court had correctly noted, is that we cannot now go back to the magistrate's court and try to find out if someone should testify again because you have already had that chance, uh, you King Price. You cannot have a second bite at the cherry, particularly at these particular proceedings. You should have at least tried to deal with those issues at an early stage. Um, So that is indeed what had transpired with regards to the false information. All right, good news for the insured, I guess. The insured uh, CCS won the case against uh, Kim Price Insurance Company, so they had to indeed uh, pay for that claim in terms of the insurance policy. But obviously one would always want to avoid having to go to court to get your money from the insurance company. So I would think the lesson, uh, Rehu, is to... Um, make sure that you indeed communicate the correct information to the insurance company after the accident has, uh, you know, has happened. Um, and uh, you know, like in, in this case, that was the, was the relevant issue. But but otherwise, also very important if you take out insurance, whether it's short-term insurance, life insurance, whatever the case might be, it's very important that you disclose all relevant facts to the insurance company to make sure that they don't later have a basis to repudiate any claims. Correct. Okay. So I think that is uh, what uh, everybody can learn from this uh, case as as well. Thank you, Rehu. It's a pleasure. My name is Volker Kruger. You're listening to Van Duffy Legal News. Elmeri Richter, thank you for Joining us, a court case about a sperm donor's application for visitation rights. Please uh, give us the facts of this case. 
Hi, Volker. Um, this was a very interesting matter before Pretoria High Court. And in this matter, there was a lesbian couple who really wanted to start their own family. And they, um, they then made a few posts on social media inviting prospective sperm donors to make contact with them. And this applicant in this matter, I'm going to refer to him as Mr. X, he then contacted the couple and expressed that he's interested to donate his sperm. So the parties met one another. They were very satisfied with him and with his willingness to actually donate. So they started a legal process. They went to attorneys and a sperm donors agreement were drafted and signed by the parties. Now, this agreement, it was quite a standard agreement, although it covers everything that you can think of. And this agreement also specifically made provision for the fact that Mr. X, who's the donor, will not have any rights and responsibilities in respect of this child. He will only be the donor and the couple will be the parents and the guardian. Of... I think that's a typical term, no? Maybe yes. Term agreement, no? Yes, that is 100% a standard term and that's also something in that's set out in our law. So the parties reached the, the agreement. They were very happy with it. After signing the agreement, Mr. X donated his sperm. Uh, a child was conceived and a, a very healthy boy was then born. So after the birth of the child and when the couple and the baby were still in the hospital, Mr. X went to visit them and he, they stayed in contact. The parties actually stayed in contact with one another. There was also a time, I think it was for a period of nine months, where the couple leased a house from Mr. X. And I think it's safe to say during this period, Mr. X um, saw the, the baby or the boy a, a few times and on a few occasions. Now, despite this sperm donor agreement that was reached five years after the birth of the child, Mr. X and his mother approached the High Court in Pretoria requesting that the court grant them visitation rights in respect of this boy. And um, they based their application on a bond that developed between them and the boy. So they didn't base their application on a genetic link or interest that a lot of people try to do. They actually based this application on a relationship that formed and developed between them and the boy. And they said, but it would be in the best interest of this boy if this relationship continue and if they continue to play a part in the boy's life. So they brought this application in two parts. Part A, they only asked for visitation, and then they asked that social workers, the family advocate, etc., do an investigation to determine what would be in the best interest of this boy. And then part B of the application flows from part A and will be brought after the investigation is done. And in part B, they actually not only ask for visitation, but in part B, they also ask for guardianship. Now, this request before court will have a significant impact on the family life of this child. Um, it will change significantly. He will not only have two guardians like normal kids, he will now have three guardians and two set of families, etc. So this was the application that the court had to consider. 
my take would be that the application shouldn't succeed uh, because of that agreement and I guess also because it would set a precedent uh, for the future. I, I mean, that would make it very difficult for uh, people who want to use a sperm donor to, to, to you know, do something like that. Yes. Uh, what did the court find? Well, the court actually agreed with you, Volker. Um, the court dismissed this application and the court said that they cannot allow visitation to take place. And the court also made a cost order um, granting an order against Mr. X, requesting him to pay the costs of the couple that they obviously they were forced to incur some legal costs to oppose this application. But Fulka, if you don't mind, I would like to just briefly discuss the reason for the ruling of court because because it's not merely based on the contract that was reached. The court considered a few different aspects as well. Yes. Um, and before we start, I think it's important for the listeners to keep at the back of their mind that sperm donors do not have any rights and responsibilities in respect of a child born from their donation, like we said previously. Um, so the court noted this and once again reiterated this principle, but the court also indicated that we should acknowledge the fact that the applicant is not bringing this application based on a genetic link. The Mr. X is bringing this application and out of him having a relationship with this child. And the court then had to consider the extent of this bond and the relationship between the child and Mr. X. And the court actually found that there's no mutual bond between the child and Mr. X. So Mr. X values the relationship he has with this boy and he has a deep connection with this child. But for the child, this relationship has no meaning, if I may say it that way. So it's also important to note that Mr. X testified in court and he actually explained to the court that the moment when he held this baby in his arms, he felt this deep connection with this child. And it was from this deep connection that he felt that this application actually flowed. And the relationship that he tried to have with the child, it flowed from this deep connection that he had the moment he held the baby in his arms. So this deep connection was not something that the couple and the parents of this child was even aware of. I, I think if they were aware of this deep connection, they would have never allowed any contact between Mr. X and the child for obvious reasons. But, um, yeah, the court said that, yes, they understand that Mr. X has this care and this value for the relationship, but it's one-sided. It, it's not a mutual bond. And the bond doesn't mean anything to the child. So that doesn't really affect the best interest of the child because for this child, it's just another person. What's also um, important to take note of in this specific matter is that Mr. X saw the child two years ago. So two years passed when he didn't have any contact with the child and then he brought this application. Yeah. Now, this is important because children the age of five and four, the more you see them, that's how they build a relationship with you. They don't always remember seeing you three years ago. Um, and also the court noted that he only saw the child on few occasions. There was not, not like any sleepover contact or any proper visitation or contact session. He saw the child on a few occasions. So that cannot really create a mutual bond. Then the court also looked at 
um, the respondents, who is the couple, whether they were actually responsible for this bond that created. And the court said that no, they were not responsible for the bond that crea was created between Mr. X and the child, because on the one hand, the bond's only one-sided, it's only Mr. X who feels the bond. And then secondly, they, they actually allowed a few contact session out of a sense of gratitude, and they were polite. They never encouraged a, a relationship to build between the child and, um, and Mr. X. So that was also something that the court looked at. But the court made mention of two very important things, and this is what I'm going to conclude with, is firstly the court said that we all know sperm donors does not have any rights or responsibilities in respect of the child. And this is important because this creates legal certainty and it is essential for, the, um, for sustaining the artificial reproductive system in South Africa. If we now give visitation rights to a sperm donor, um, no one will be willing to donate sperm anymore and people who really want to start a family will not accept sperm donations because they know that they will now open a door for possible claims in respect of their child in future. So if we want to protect the artificial reproductive system in South Africa, we cannot allow to give sperm donors rights or responsibilities in respect of children born from their donation. That's the one thing the court said. And then lastly and secondly, I think this was also very important. The court looked at a family. And the court said that a family is such a private and intimate space um, and a bond. So this space and this family bond requires protection, especially protection from the influence of third parties. And the court said that the couple intended to have a normal family with this child. And this family relationship is worthy and deserving of constitutional protection. And therefore, the court said he can merely not allow Mr. X to influence and interfere um, this perfect relationship that the couple have with their child. And that's why the court said he will not allow visitation because this will interfere. The, this interference will not be in the best interest of the child. So um, that's why he actually refused to grant visitation. So is the court saying that um, there is this agreement in place, there is the artificial reproductive system in South Africa that we need to protect and therefore the sperm donor shouldn't get visitation rights full stop. In other words, it's actually not relevant whether there is a relationship between the sperm donor and uh, the child at all, um, because I think that should be the position, is it not? Um, yes. Because uh, otherwise you open the door, as you said, to numerous disputes and uncertainty and 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 so on, which obviously is also not in the interest of, of those children. Um, yes. Yeah, that so, is so exactly the further investigation actually is not relevant, um, is it? Well, to my mind, not. However, we cannot ignore the fact that the court actually did look into the relationship and the bond. So the court's ruling was, no, we cannot let this person interfere with the family. We have to protect the reproductive system, all that type of things. But the court also spent time to first actually determine 
the extent of this relationship and the bond between the child. I think that perhaps if there was actually uh, a different relationship between the child and the donor, and if there was a mutual bond, perhaps the outcome of this matter would have been different. Um, but the court said no. And I agree with the court. I think it's very important that we have to protect this artificial reproductive system. We cannot allow donors to to interfere because this will also up, open up a door for surrogate agreements and that type of things. We don't. When you enter into an agreement like this, you know exactly what you are contracting to. You know you are giving away um, sperm and that a child will be born. But I think we should we should be strict, and I think and I hope our courts will will be strict with this to not allow any interference. But I guess for any couple using the service of a sperm donor, the lesson is to make sure that there is no contact with the yes. sperm as, as yes. the agreement so that you don't sit with a situation like this. Um, yeah. It's obviously the natural reaction of any father of a child holding the child in his arms, as you also explained, was uh, appearing was from the court judgment, is to... to to feel an affection now for that child. Yes, um, that's so true. So to prevent that from happening, um, um, yeah, you, you need to keep away this sperm donor from the child. I would, I would think. Yes, that's also one of the lessons I would um, say the listeners should take note of. Um, don't be polite. Don't, out of a sense of gratitude, allow this visitation or even, I would say, this first visitation in hospital. That was the the moment when Mr. X realized that he now wants to be part of the child's life. So I, I think our listeners should should remember this and they should not be polite. They should not allow this connection or, or this visitation at all. I think it's to their own detriment. So this uh, remains intact as an exception to the rule that the biological father always is a natural guardian and um, uh, yeah, and also uh, has an obligation to maintain that child of his. No? In yes. this case, he has neither the right of uh, visitation or access to the child, and also um, he doesn't have the obligation to maintain the child. So, yes. so this is an exception which the court confirms uh, exists in our law to the general rule that a bi biological father always has those uh, rights and obligations. Yes, and this exception is set out in the Children's Act as well. Okay. Okay. Yes. Thank you, Amory. Thank you, Volker. That's all we have uh, time for today. Remember, our email address is info at vvd.co.za. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week, Wednesday, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and then also on Friday evenings.